Father, as we gather in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, our coming King, we give you thanks for the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells our hearts, who speaks through the Word of God, who, in, who, who, who puts a light before our path that we might walk in the ways that you have called us. Father, I pray for each one here this morning that you'll give us focus on what you're saying to us individually, even though the word may be specific to a particular a subject, its application is broad, uh, and you're able to take it to, to meet each of our needs this day. And so I ask, Lord, that you will minister to our hearts, that you will bless throughout our Sunday school this morning in every class. Uh, so many of our friends teaching at various levels minister through them and in the service that is concurrent with this class. And we ask, Father, that throughout the city of Reading, wherever your word is proclaimed, that you will be there in power, changing lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The book, which the Hebrews call In the Wilderness, but which, as I noted last week to you, the Septuagint translators decided to call Numbers. It begins with a census, and, and that's the reason it was called Numbers, because there are two censuses in the book. And last week we looked very briefly uh, at that first census, which occupies the first four chapters of the book of Numbers. And, and there we discover that uh, God ordered Moses to have a census made of Israel. And we're, we're given a list of those who would help with the census there in the beginning. And we discover there's one from each tribe, a tribal leader from each tribe that was to help in this census. And of course, probably designated those who would count uh, his particular tribal group. And the numbering was to be done so that they would know the number of males from 20 years old and upward for the 12 tribes. And then for the tribe of Levi, a separate census was taken and the number was given for those of one month old and upward. And so that was how the number was arrived at of 603,000 plus for males of the 12 tribes and then the 23,000 and some for the uh, tribe of Levi. The fifth chapter of Numbers we just talked about very briefly. It deals with the question of purity and specifically the purity rel relative to adultery and the ridding of adultery from the midst of Israel. Chapter 6 continues with this theme of purity but with a very, very intriguing concept. And in the sixth chapter of the book of Numbers, we read about what is called the law of the Nazarite. And I'd like to read the first eight verses to begin with this morning of Numbers chapter 6. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. And he shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. 
all the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. Now obviously this is an unusual situation. This was not the normal condition for the Israelite. The vow of the Nazarite, it should be noted, was to be a totally voluntary commitment that was made publicly by an individual. And we're told in this passage it could be male or female, but most of the Nazarites we know about, at least the ones that are named, are males in Scripture. And, and they would make this vow for a usually a specified length of time. Now, much later in time, long after the Old Testament was completed, the Hebrew Mishnahs would tell us that the Nazarite vow was usually made for a 30-day period. And, of course, it became a joke later on, because in the days of the New Testament, the first century, for example, there are accounts of, of obviously wicked people taking Nazarite vows. So, obviously, it didn't mean much by that time in the eyes, at least, of many. But this was a very, very important vow, as God ordained it here, for the Israelites. And for this certain length of time, they were to make this total commitment to God, but it, at the end of which, they were to return to a normal lifestyle, except in a few cases that we know about. We know, of course, in the case of Samson, his vow was to be for lifetime. Uh, of course, the vow was made before he was even born and was imposed upon him. But, but he accepted it, but he wasn't exactly a good Nazarite, as, as we know, as you read through the account of Samson. But uh, Samuel, too, and, and then probably also John the Baptist were uh, individuals who were under the Nazarite vow for life. Now, the word Nazarite has nothing to do with the word Nazarene. You know, Jesus is called the Nazarene. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He had never taken a Nazarite vow. Uh, Jesus the Nazarene simply means that Jesus came from Nazareth, a town up in the north. has nothing to do with this particular vow. The word Naz Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, which means consecrated one. And the one who took the Nazarite vow was making a very, very serious vow committing himself absolutely to the service of God and God alone for the period of the vow. And he would demonstrate his commitment to God and his, his distinguishment amongst his people by these aspects of the vow which are given here. Uh, for example, he would abstain for all, from all products of the grapevine. Now, products of the grapevine were not forbidden to the Jews. Oh, they would eat raisins, they ate raisin cakes, they drank wine. All, all of these things were part of their lifestyle. The thing that was forbidden to them, of course, was to become drunk from the drinking of these things or whatever. But the Nazarite was not even to touch any part of the grape at all. Not even the seeds, we're told. And, you know, we, we could ask, what is the reason for this? Well, the basic reason was, for, was to make him stand out from the rest of Israel to be different from the rest of Israel, to give up what was considered in those days to be the ultimate delicacy of, of human uh, existence as far as eating and drinking was concerned. And so he was, he was giving up these comfort things in life. Then secondly, we're told that he was not to trim his hair. Now, hair trimming wasn't real common amongst the Israelites anyway. I mean, they went around with fairly long hair. But the idea was that they would let the hair grow long, 
on the head, and, and what this, the hair generally was considered to be a, some kind of a sign of virility, of uh, a sign of life, and, and thus dedication of this life to God. And then, of course, complete separation from any contamination with a dead body, even beyond that which was forbidden to the priest. So, so their dedication was supreme. They couldn't even contaminate themselves relative to their own parents if they died. Ronald Allen, in his commentary on Numbers, makes the following statement. He says, thus three areas were mandated for the Nazarite during the period of his vow. Diet, appearance, and associations. Every Israelite was under regulations in these general areas. For the Nazarite, each of these regula regulations was heightened. The Nazarite vow was not just an act of superior self-discipline. It was to be regarded as a supreme act of total devotion to the person and work of the Lord that would override certain normal and expected patterns of behavior. Things were given up that didn't have to be given up in order to dedicate the life more fully to Jesus Christ, or that is to Yahweh in, in that time, as they understood it. So they, they were to be an example. They, they were to be set apart. What, what we might say here is that God probably introduced this Nazarite vow in order to create a spiritual leadership amongst the laity. These, these people who took, I mean, it was possible certainly for a Levite to take the Nazarite vow, but it was possible for somebody from any tribe to take the Nazarite vow. And thus they would develop a kind of a spiritual leadership for Israel. And the rest of the Israelites would see this person and they would be reminded of dedication to God because every time this person passed by, uh, because it had been a public dedication, they would be reminded of God working in their midst because here was a man, here was a woman, fully dedicated to the service of God. Now we know that in the case of certain ones, in the case of Samson, there went a spiritual power with that dedication. That is, he was given strength that seemed almost superhuman. Now that was not the case that we know about in, the, in, in involving any other Nazarite vow. But in that particular case, God gave a special power. In the case of Samson, uh, of, uh, of Samuel, God gave the special ability to be a perceptive one, to be a prophet in effect in Israel and to be the anointer of the first kings of Israel. And then, of course, we know in the case of John the Baptist, he was, before he was even born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? So that when Mary came into the presence of Elizabeth and greeted Elizabeth, the baby leapt in her womb, we're told, because the Spirit of God indwelled that, we call it a fetus. It was John the Baptist uh, in there. You know, the Holy Spirit had not filled a blob of protoplasm. The Holy Spirit had filled what would be a great man of God John the Baptist. Now we know that Nazarites existed in Israel to, in considerable numbers. Let me read a passage of scripture to you from the second chapter of Amos. Uh, the prophet Amos, who lives hundreds of years after the time we're talking about, kind of summarizes some of the events that we've talked about and then points out a, a very specific thing. In Amos chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. And it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness forty years, 
that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Now, this is what God has done. Defeated these mighty nations, brought them through the 40 years and brought them into the land. Then he says, then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Big condemnation. Condemnation against Israel for violating the vows of the Nazarite and the commitment of the prophet, uh, forcing them to, to desecrate their own vows because of their, their selfishness and, and their, their paganism, in effect, uh, which had come. After all that God had done, I mean, God gives them the land. And then they turn their backs on God and desecrate the anointed ones, the ones sent to prophesy, the ones to sent to be examples. <coughs> The prophets were to prophesy the word of God and the Nazarites were to live the life of God in their midst. And yet they forcefully desecrated both by the time of Amos' prophecy. Now if one has committed himself or herself to the Nazarite vow and the period of time comes to an end, there is a very interesting ceremony that goes along with the termination of the Nazarite vow. We read this beginning in verse 13 of number 6. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old without defect, for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without defect, for a sin offering, and one ram without defect, for a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil, along with their grain offering and their libations. Then the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall also offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, Together with the basket of unleavened cakes, the priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its libation. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and shall take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it has been boiled and one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his dedicated hair. Then the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It is holy for the priest, together with the breast offered by waving and the thigh offered by lifting up, and afterward the Nazarite may drink wine. Now what is significant about this is that this is no small thing when you came to the end of the Nazarite vow. And because you knew what the requirement was when you terminated the Nazarite vow, you did not take the Nazarite vow lightly. Because those offerings we read about are expensive. I mean, there's three animals of perfect uh, nature, and, and the bread, and the grain, and the oil, and the wine, and all that went with this. I mean, we're talking about a pretty expensive offering that had to be offered. So you had to be prepared to make such an offering to the Lord. Now, the point of it all was to uh, highlight the significance of, of one dedicating his life and all that he has unto God. 
and recognizing God is worth everything you can do and everything and anything you can give and beyond. Nothing is too good for God. And so the, the vow of the Nazarite was something that very few took because few would come to that place where they felt this, this inner uh, impelling to dedicate themselves for, let's say, uh, a month, six months, a year, whatever the term was, and, and then to, to pay this price. I mean, the price had to be paid every day in the sense of denying yourselves these certain things. And of course, as you lived as a Nazarite, you needed to exhibit the reality of God incarnate, if you will, uh, manifesting himself through your life. And then, of course, at the time of the termination of the vow, this, this great ceremony that one had to go through. So it was a serious matter. And I think God provided it because he knew that there would be people who were not of the tribe of Levi, who therefore could not serve the tabernacle in, in daily service, but who, who wanted to express their love for God and wanted a way in which they could commit themselves to God. This was the way that they could do that and be from any tribe. And of course, today we have to translate that into the New Testament, and that's what God expects of us all. Not that he wants us to go around, you know, letting our hair grow to the floor and, uh, you know, these kinds of limitations, but in the sense of this attitude of dedication. We should all be dedicated to the Lord as the Nazarite was dedicated to the Lord. Now, the latter part of this sixth chapter is probably the part of the chapter most people have read or quoted uh, more than maybe any other part of the book of Numbers, because in these last verses of chapter 6, we have uh, what is often referred to as the Aaronic benediction, the benediction of Aaron. Let me read beginning there at verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you, and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. This is probably the closest thing in the Old Testament to a formulated prayer. And the encouragement here is that this specific prayer be prayed. Now, I believe in extemporary prayer, uh, the prayer that we pray at the moment according to the leading of God, but I think there is a time and a place to pray the prayers of Scripture. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. This is a threefold benediction. There are three parallel statements here in the verses 24, 25, and 26. And many commentators will say that this threefold benediction might be a reference to the Trinity. The Lord Yahweh bless you and keep you. The Lord Messiah make his face shine upon you. The Lord, the Spirit of God, lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Well, whether it is or is not, it definitely is the threefold repetition, which in Scripture always means increasing intensity. Whenever something is said three times, it means the superlative of superlatives. You say it once, 
You say it twice, that reinforces you. You say it three times, you, can't not, you cannot say it any, with any greater intensity in Hebrew than to repeat the, same, the thing three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so this is a tripartite repetition of blessing upon Israel. That was to be prayed by the priests over the people. And he says at the end, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel. Let me just uh, reinforce this by, it's interesting because in this passage here, um, where it says uh, in the 26th verse, the Lord lift up his countenance on you, that can be interpreted as smile. The Lord lift up his smile on you and give you peace. And of course, the word peace in our society, we talk about peace rather tritely a lot. But this is the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean peace like in the sense why it's quiet outside or there's no war going on. The word shalom means well-being. The word shalom means every man is sitting under his own grapevine and there's not only peace in the land, but all is well with his family and all is well with his soul. He's economically in good shape. He's in good health. I mean, everything that Job was before it all happened to him, you know. Job had shalom and then, you know, the roof fell in. And then at the end, though, shalom returns. So it in itself is, is a great word of blessing. But let me read uh, just a few little tidbits out of the Psalms. Psalm 27, uh, verses 8 and 9, we read this. When thou didst say, Seek my face, my heart said to thee, Thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide thy face from me. Do not turn thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. The idea of God's face being turned towards us with a smile on his face, the idea is that we are blessed beyond all possible blessing because we have the smile of God's face in our direction. And, and that is what the psalmist is saying. I have sought your face. Don't hide your face from me because if, if God hides his face, then, then we're, we, we're denied the blessing. We're denied the fellowship of God. And of course, implied here is anger. Why would God turn his face? Because of anger. He might turn his face. In, in the 34th Psalm, we see how that plays out. In verse 16, we read that the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because, you see, God's face, now this is anthropomorphized, of course. Uh, you know, we, we talk about God with a face and the hand of God and the arm of God is not shortened. This is all anthropomorphic, you know, anthropomorphy. <laughs> anthropomorphy. <laughs> Anyway, it's, it's putting characteristics on God that God does not have because the scripture tells us he is a spirit. But we get this concept here. God's face turned towards us with a smile is the greatest of all blessings. God's face hidden from us is, is a, a signal of anger and, and uh, displeasure. God's face turned with wrath is the worst thing. You know, the blazing eyes of God. Uh, turned down to destroy the evil ones on the face of the earth. In Psalm 80, then, we kind of get back to the same concept of the Aaronic benediction because in Psalm 80, we read in verse 7, O God, restore us and cause thy face to shine upon us and we will be saved. 
Verse 7, O God of hosts, restore us. Cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So the blessing here that the uh, priests were to pray over Israel is that they would be saved temporally and eternally. Chapter 7 of the book of Numbers deals with the offerings that the various tribes would bring for the dedication of the tabernacle. Let me read the first part of chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now it came about on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle. He anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's households, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. And their list is given back at the beginning of the chapter uh, of the book. When they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered uh, carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and an ox for each one. Then they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these things from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, that you shall give them to the Levi, and you shall give them to the Levites, and to each man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. Now remember, they are the ones who would carry the coverings of the tabernacle and the various curtains. And so they could stack all of those in two ox carts. And four carts and eight oxen he was to give to the sons of Merari according to their service under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Now, they were the ones who were supposed to carry the foundations and all the framework of the tabernacle. All those posts out there around the courtyard uh, that, that went completely around the tabernacle enclosure and then, of course, the framework of the tabernacle themselves, itself. So they put all of this in their four carts. Verse 9, But he did not give any to the sons of Kohath, because theirs was the service of the holy objects, which they carried on the shoulder. They were to carry on the poles between the shoulders of the Kohathites, the Ark of the Covenant, the golden altar of incense, the brazen altar for the offerings, the candelabra, all of these things were to be carried. They were not to be transported on a vehicle, but carried by foot by the sons of Kohath. This, of course, plays out later on in, in Hebrew history in some tragedies that uh, you certainly remember. So this was a very practical offering, an offering that would be useful for, for years and years down the line as these ox carts drawn by these oxen would carry the tabernacle and the curtains and the coverings of the tabernacle. Now, if you read down through this chapter, it's a very long chapter, and it's highly repetitious. Because we, as we read the chapter, we discover it, it starts out uh, here in verse 12, and it tells us that uh, Nashon of the tribe of Judah would bring his offering, and it would include one silver dish uh, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one lamb, 21-year-old, uh, for <laughs> one-year-old, 
for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. Now this is repeated 12 times. The, ver the chapter is very long, goes to 89, 89 verses. But you have this, this repeated over and over and over again. And we're told here that what, ha what happened was that each day for 12 days running, the tribal leader would bring that tribe's offering to the tabernacle. And those sacrifices for that tribe would be made on that day. The next day, the next tribe would bring its offering and that sacrifice would be made for that tribe that day. This happened 12 days running because you add it all up. I mean, there are 21 animals per tribe. And so you multiply that, that times 12, you know, you're 200 and some odd animals you're dealing with here. There's no way they're going to sacrifice all those animals in one day. And so what they do is cause every tribe to have the sense of equality before God and of importance before God because their offering would be made on this day and this would be the day focusing on them and their dedication to the tabernacle. And so nobody would feel slighted and, and none of the tribes would be considered inferior because each one had his day to, to bring the offering before the Lord. What this did, of course, was to supply the need of the tabernacle for a long time because uh, with this comes silver and gold and incense, all that's needed for the ongoing participation of worship at the tabernacle. This, of course, makes its dedication important to Israel. Important to Israel. It's like when Solomon would later dedicate the temple. He'd do it with an immense amount of ceremony and pageantry and sacrifice of thousands of animals. It was to make an impression on Israel that they would not forget the dedication of the tabernacle and that they had a part in it, an equal part in it. And nobody over there can say, well, I'm of the tribe of Asher and we hardly got any time at all in front of God. No, they couldn't say that because they had their day just as Judah and Simeon and and Naphtali and Zebulon and Issachar and all the others. They were equally into this commitment to the tabernacle service of God. In the eighth chapter of Numbers, we have a description of the service of the Levites, their consecration and the beginning of their service to the tabernacle. Once the tabernacle had been dedicated, they then began their service to the tabernacle. And they were responsible for maintaining the precincts of the tabernacle and carrying out the service of it, the sacrifice of these animals, and all that had to do with maintaining the work of the tabernacle there. In, the, uh, in verse 14 of chapter 8, for the next few verses, we have God's reiteration of the role of the Levite. He says, Thus you shall separate the Levite from among the sons of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Then after the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. 
For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. But I've taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his two sons from among the sons of Israel to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel that there may be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. Of course, there was no way that Aaron and two boys could do the whole work of the tabernacle. So God gave them the whole tribe of Levi. And we noted last week that the number of men in the tribe of Levi from one month older and on up was almost identical to the number of firstborn in Israel at that time. No coincidence. This was God's plan. And God set it up this way. And these Levites are now a gift. Aaron and his sons can say, whoa, we have this man bar. We can do the job. We can do the job. And, and, this, and it begins out there by saying, these are a wave offering. The, the wave offering is the offering which probably was actually, there was some symbolic waving. But the point of the wave offering was God accepts it as an offering, but gives it back in the sense that, uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's an animal being wave offered, the priests then eat the animal. And if it's the, the, the wheat, they, they eat it. Uh, it's not burned. And so all of the Levites become the wave offering. They, they are able to serve. They continue to live and, and they work there, but they have already been dedicated to God. They've been given to him. You know, it reminds me, just, just this moment, <laughs> should have reminded me this a long time ago, but it reminds me of this passage that we so often quote in Romans, isn't it? Doesn't it? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We're supposed to all be Levites in that sense. Given to God, dedicated to God, but given our lives to serve here. To serve the church, to serve in the world. So, I mean, that parallelism is, is so strong and intentional. And the way we do that, of course, is to not, being, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And how can we do that? How can we renew the mind by the Spirit of God using this book to do it. There isn't any other way. Now, we can go out and sit in a cave someplace and contemplate our <coughs> navel or whatever we want for the rest of our lives, and that's not going to transform our mind. Oh, it might, you know, make it into a bowl of jello up here, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it isn't going to transform our minds the way the Scripture is talking about into people dedicated to God. It only can happen through the Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God. There isn't any other way. You know what happened when Muhammad sat out in... Uh, in, in a desert, in a cave for a while. You know, he came up with a new religion <laughs> called Mohammedanism. Of course, a little hashish probably helped that one along, but nevertheless, you know, he, he came up with this, this new idea. Well, that's not how our mind is to be transformed because we're to do what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, right, pleasing, complete, mature, mature. We struggle with that, don't we? Becoming mature in the Lord. We become mature in body before we become mature in the Lord, it seems, unfortunately. Well, that brings us to chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9 is the story of the first reenactment of the Passover 
since it was in, instituted by God in Egypt one year before. Let me read the first part of chapter 9. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. And they observed the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. But there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, of a dead person, so that they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, Though we're unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time from amongst the sons of Israel? Moses therefore said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person it is, or is on a distant journey, he may observe, however, observe the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that man shall be cut off from his people. For he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover of the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinances, so he shall do. You shall have one statute, both for the alien and for the native of the land. To not participate in the Passover was to deny the essence of salvation in the death of the Passover lamb. And can you see the parallel to Jesus Christ? The one who will not participate in the life and death of Christ is cast out from his people and will not participate in the eternal kingdom. The parallelism there is, is so great because, of course, Jesus is the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. And the Passover was established uh, to prepare hearts for accepting the Messiah as the one who would die for the sins of his people. The passage here tells us and repeats it. God is into repetition, I'm sure you've noticed. On the 14th of Nisan, Nisan, the Hebrews were to remember God's deliverance from the death angel and from Egypt by celebrating the Passover meal. Exactly as God had instituted it one year before there in Egypt. God ordained Nisan, which would be basically uh, our March-April period. You know, the period from maybe the middle-ish of March towards the middle-ish of April. It, it varied. To be the first month of the year for the Hebrews. That was to be their first month. Why? Well, I, I think that there were several reasons. 
One is, of course, that it was the month of their departure out of Egypt. After 400 years living under the thumb of the Egyptians, they now are out on their own. Uh, they have been delivered from the land of Egypt. They are now beginning the next phase of God's plan of redemption. So this marks the beginning of your year for you. Also, secondly, its beginning approximates the vernal equinox in the northern hemisphere. And of course, we know at the vernal equinox, you have life bursting forth. The buds come out, the grass grows, the animals multiply, they become twitter-pated, you know. And, and all of this happens. Now, of course, pagans have desecrated this. And pagans have desecrated this, of course, by making all these fertility rites and fertility gods and goddesses and all this kind of junk. There's nothing wrong with understanding that spring is God's gift to the human race. And, and it would be in Canaan, the time when the ground would begin to give forth again. It was a great time to have the new year begin, right? And then lastly, and certainly these are not the only uh, reasons, but... I think it's a break away from Egypt, to break away from what they had been living under for 400 years in the sense of the year. Because the Egyptians had a very different year. The Egyptians had a three-season year, each season made up of four months. Uh, the first Egyptian season was from July, July, August, September, October. The first four months, would, those would be the four months. And it was the time when the flood came on the land. The water of the Nile rose, it went out of its banks, it spread out over the land of Egypt, and, and then it, it stayed at maximum flood. And of course, the Egyptians helped that, helped that because they built all kinds of berms to hold the water in, let it soak into the ground. But uh, th this would be the time of inundation, and that's what they called it. This is the season of inundation for four months. And then it would be followed beginning in November, November, December, January, February, by the, the, what they called the four months of coming forth or breaking forth. It was when the land broke free from the water and when the plants broke out of the ground because of the flooding had made the soil fertile and moist and, and they planted and out of it came, of course, their crops. And then this was finally succeeded by the season which they simply called dry. The river was low, it doesn't rain in Egypt, rarely at least, as I've mentioned to you before. So the ground has become dry and parched, and you have March, April, May, and June uh, before the flood begins to rise again. And God didn't want them to function under a calendar like that. It had nothing to do with what he was doing. And, and so the year begins with the, with the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And our lives begin with the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. We are born again at the moment we believe in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And, and so that, that, that parallel is so significant, I think, to us. Oh, it's true, the Hebrews will eventually develop a kind of a uh, secular year to go along with the, what they will call the religious year because they didn't want to be too out of sync with everybody else. And, and so that kind of confuses things later on. But this, this is the pattern that God had established for them. And then, of course, well, let me just say this one other thing here. As we read it in this passage, uh, God understands human nature. And this is illustrated by the fact that God knew there would probably be somebody who couldn't be there at time, at the right time for uh, the Passover celebration because, in this case, they were contaminated by a dead person. They had buried somebody. Or, of course, they were off on a journey. Now, you might say, well, they could plan their journey, right? So they'd be there. Well, maybe not. So God allows for that. And he says, okay, they can celebrate it one month later. They can participate. 
but it'll have to be the following month. And thus, everything will be carried out according to God's dictates, and yet these people will be able to participate. Well, the uh, first repetition of the Passover was not to be the last, of course. It was to be an annual thing carried out by Israel year after year after year after year without fail, constantly reminding themselves of their deliverance from Egypt and their deliverance by the blood of the Lamb. And this, of course, is what we have to continue to remember. We have been delivered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, we don't have to go sacrificing that Lamb over and over again like uh, is done in certain denominations, but we have to be reminded that it is by His blood that we have become clean and we're able to serve Him day by day. Next week, I want to begin by looking at the latter half of the ninth chapter as we begin to probe into the actual departure of, of Israel from Sinai and the journey northward.